Hey folks, Dave Harvey here and welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Joining me today is Bob Lapine and Bob is arguably one of the two most recognizable voices on Christian radio today because he's been sitting opposite Dennis Rainey as a co-host on Family Life Radio for about 25 years. But a lesser known fact about Bob is that Bob is also a church planter. Bob planted a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, Redeemer Community Church, along with some other people. And that began about 10 years ago. And we want to hear a little bit about that as well. But Bob, it's great to have you with us today. Dave, great to connect. Good to be with you. Bob, tell us a story about how you came to be a voice at Family Life Radio. Well, I wish I'd had your book uh, back 26 years ago when I got a call from Dennis Rainey who said, we uh, are thinking about starting a radio program here at Family Life, and we wonder if you would be available to help us. Uh, Dennis and I had never met face-to-face, but I had interviewed him twice on a call-in local call-in radio show that I was doing at the station I managed in San Antonio, Texas. And I remembered thinking Dennis was a better than average guest, and he remembered thinking I was a better than average interviewer. So when Family Life uh, was thinking about starting a program, he called and said, could you help? And I said, you mean like consult? And he said, no, we're looking for somebody full time. And I said, well, I just got to be honest with you. We love San Antonio. I'm in a good job here. We feel like this is where God wants us to be. I said, I want to be open to whatever God would have, but um, but I can't imagine us leaving San Antonio. And he said, well, I'm going to send you some stuff, some things to fill out. And I remember getting that package in the mail and I, I just let it lay there for a while. And one Saturday I said to my wife, we both need to fill out this form because there was some stuff for her to fill out as well. And mm-hmm. she said, why are we doing this? And I said, well, I said, we're just we're doing this because we want to be open to whatever God has. And she says, but we're not moving, are we? And I said, I don't think so. So uh, six weeks later, we were in San Antonio, or excuse me, in Little Rock visiting and meeting Dennis for the first time. And Dave, um, at the end of that trip, we looked at each other and it just seemed like like God had had uh, cleared away all of the, the barriers. It, it just seemed really clear that the chemistry fit here, the mission was a fit, my skill set blended with what family life needed. Um, and we looked at each other and said, this is odd because this seems right, but we don't want to move. And in fact, that was one of the reasons I, I had a sense that God was in this because it wasn't it wasn't my desire to move, but it it seemed that God was was making things clear. Here was kind of the final thing that pushed us over the edge. My mom had become a widow three years before this, and she had moved to San Antonio to be near us and near the kids. So I kind of thought that was my ace in the hole. We don't have to move because I need to stay in San Antonio because that's where my mom lives now. that's a pretty good one. (laughs) So we went back to San Antonio, and my mom said, now, what was this trip to Little Rock all about? And I explained to her what was going on. She said, well, are they going to offer you a job? And I said, I I think they might. I said, but we like it here in San Antonio, and you're here, and we we don't want to move. And she said, well, I'd be willing to move. And, 
at that point, it was kind of like God saying, see, I can I can clear away whatever you think is a barrier here. And so three weeks later, we said yes to uh, coming to Little Rock. And it's been clear that um, this was God's design and his plan for us. And it's just been a real fruitful, a real uh, joyful time of ministry here in Santa, uh, here in Little Rock. Bob, what was the what was the vision that uh, Dennis was was casting that looked so compelling to you during that that trip to Little Rock? Well, one of the conversations we had while we were here was um, with Family Life thinking about starting a radio program. At that time, the biggest program on Christian radio, arguably, was focused on the family. And Dennis said to me, do you think Christian radio really needs another marriage and family focused radio program? And in God's providence, six months before we had this conversation, uh, Focus on the Family had asked me to review a month's worth of their programs and just give me their feedback. And in, in that process of reviewing those programs, what jumped out at me was that uh, Focus on the Family had had uh, begun to address marriage and family issues on a cultural level, but not as much on a on an individual or a personal level. And so when Dennis asked the question, I said, I think there are two things. I said, first of all, Dr. Dobson's background is clinical psychology. Your background is you're a seminary graduate. I said, if we can stay focused, pardon the expression, but stay focused on marriage and family, on how it applies personally in somebody's home, and if we can be specifically biblical, rather than just coming at it from a biblical worldview, if we can talk about what the Bible has to say about marriage and family and relationships. I said, I think that can complement the work that family, uh, Focus on the Family is doing. So I, I think it was that vision of, of something that was practical, something that was biblical, and some, something that stayed zeroed in on marriage and family relationships. Now, Bob, I was flipping through the radio yesterday and listened to the end of an Alistair Begg sermon, and then I could have sworn that I heard your voice kind of wrapping things up. Are you are, are you cheating on family life? What's going on here? <laughs> A little moonlighting going on. Uh, Alistair called me about uh, six years ago and said, we're making some some changes to our program, and would you be available to, to serve as the new announcer, the open and close for our program? And I talked with Dennis about it. Both of us love and appreciate Alistair's ministry so much. I've personally stolen so much from him uh, in in sermons that I thought if I don't do this, I'm I'm going to be accountable to God for for doing this. So, yeah, I, I began uh, as the host of his program about six years ago, and I, I just love his Bible teaching and his philosophy of ministry. So it's been a real privilege to be connected with that program and help serve what they're doing. You know, I'm thinking about your you know your call and the the unique path that God has led you down, Bob, and. So much of your experience has orbited around radio. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about radio in a general sense. And and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll pose you the question, you know, where does radio now locate itself in the array of media options that are available to the average Christian or to the average believer or to the average leader today? In other words, what what unique space does radio inhabit now? Well, we I, I think we live in a in a time when, from a media perspective, the the ground is shifting, and I think everybody in what we think of as traditional media, 
uh, broadcast television, uh, terrestrial radio, uh, print journalism. Everybody's asking the question, what's the future for us? And I think we have to continue to kind of read the gauges and the dials as we do that. But radio is still a vibrant part of a media mix. 93% of Americans listen at least five minutes a week to a radio station, whether that's waking up to it in the morning or as they're driving in their car. I think radio does a couple of things. First of all, for us, it helps us connect with and reach people who were not necessarily seeking us out intentionally. For somebody to listen to this podcast, they have to know about it, they have to find it, they have to want to listen to it. Um, but for listeners to Family Life Today, we have a lot of people who just tuned in and heard us and found the conversation compelling, and that's how we connected with them. So it's it's the outreach, it's the difference in a local church setting between sharing with friends you know and people in the broader community knowing about the existence of your church and knowing something about your church. So it gives us a, a greater reach. The other thing it does is it gives us third-party validation for what we're doing because anybody can have a podcast, but it takes a gatekeeper at a local radio station deciding what what is the best thing we can put on for our community. They, they're validating the, the quality and the reputation and the authority of, of what you're doing. Now, not all gatekeepers are as vigilant as they ought to be, but it is nice to have some stations that have a good reputation and that reputation slides over. People trust the local station, so they, they trust the program that uh, they hear on that station. We still find that about 85% of the people who are connecting with our program are connecting via terrestrial radio. 15 to 20% somewhere in that number are listening to podcasts or listening on our app or uh, streaming it on online. But the vast majority are people who get in their car and turn on the radio. It fits into their commute or when they're out driving. And so it's still a way that we connect with a lot of folks. So you have a history with radio and, uh, you know, your ex experience, your ministry is expanding in that world. But somewhere along the way, in your heart, you begin to feel called to preach. Hmm. And, uh, you know, why, why don't you take us back to that, Bob? T tell us a story about how that particular burden surfaced and then maybe a little bit on how your church came to be planted. Well, the local church has always been something that Marianne and I have felt is uh, is not an option. It's it's a part of God's design for every believer. And so we have been active members of local churches uh, in the cities where we've lived. Uh, we, When we first got married, living in Tulsa, uh, the first church that we joined together was a church that started, we were a part of this start, we were meeting in somebody's living room on a Sunday night, listening to cassette tape sermons, and then having a sharing time after that. I brought my guitar, and uh, we sang some songs together, and, and that was church for the first six months. That church eventually established on Sunday mornings and planted, and today it's a, a large, thriving church in, in Tulsa. So we were in on the ground floor. I got to see kind of how churches uh, start from the ground up, being a part of that experience. When we moved to San Antonio, uh, I, I looked up a church in the Yellow Pages and uh, looking for a Bible church, something that would be in a philosophy of ministry that I was used to and something that we were had been a part of. And I, I found one. I called the pastor and I said, 
your phone number is in the yellow pages, but your uh, your church address isn't. He said, well, we're meeting in an apartment clubhouse right now. And I thought, here we go again, ground floor again. But we went and visited and again, just felt this was the, the community God would have us be at. The Bible teaching was sound. The fellowship was rich and genuine. And What city so, was that? This was in San Antonio. Okay. And and so we uh, we hopped in again, kind of ground floor, and uh, I became an elder at that church and uh, helped give give leadership in that local church for the next six years that we were a part of that. And then we moved to to Little Rock, and we joined a local church here. But uh, over time, here here's what was happening. Two things were happening. First of all, I was aware of what I think God is doing and, and has been doing for a while uh, among uh, theologically substantive sound churches that know how to communicate and contextualize the gospel in a contemporary way uh, and and still stay focused on biblical truth, not over-contextualize, not modify the message to, to fit the times. Uh, so things like Sojourn, like the Acts 29 Network, uh, I, I was aware that these churches were beginning to plant in cities all across the country. I was excited about that, but I looked in Little Rock and there was nothing like that happening here. Uh, I, I looked around at churches and I, I had friends who were uh, looking for something like this and they couldn't find it. They were out church hunting and they were telling me, I, I can't find a church where we just feel like we can plug in and be a part. So this is 2006, 2007? Yeah, this was in 2007, and we, I was at uh, uh, just a fellowship time at some friend's house. Um, this was at Christmas time, 2007, and uh, I, I was asking all of these folks, where are you going to church? And nobody had a good answer, and uh, in fact, they were meeting once a month in somebody's living room just to, to have some fellowship and, and uh, to stay focused on Scripture. And I looked at them and said, well, you know, we could start a church. And they all looked at me like, you mean just— just like that, you just start a church. I mean, don't don't you have to have papers or something? Don't you have to have somebody's approval to be able to do this? And I said, we've we've done this. We've been a part of church plants uh, over uh, over a couple of times in in our lifetime. I said, uh, I, I I can teach. I'd been a Sunday school teacher. Um, I, I I'm a I'm a self taught theologian. Don't have a seminary degree, but uh, honestly, I've I've done a lot of, uh, I, I've listened to to uh, thousands of sermons, read lots of books. I, I just, I've had a passion for this. So I said, I think I can, I can teach the Bible and I have a guitar and can lead songs. So we've got those two things covered at the start, but obviously we don't want it to be the Bob Lapine show. So we, we got to figure out how we diversify that over time. And how but, many people were part of that group? Uh, that first group, there were, there were about a dozen people in the living room. And I said, let's put together just a meeting where uh, we can we can invite people we know who have been asking us about about our church thoughts. We'll just invite them to come and and we'll have an exploratory meeting. And so, in early February of 2008, we had about 60 people come out to a uh, a little clubhouse that's a part of a neighborhood. We served cheesecake and coffee, and we sang some songs. And then I said, here's the the vision that I have for a new church in Little Rock. And and again, that vision was connected to what I saw God doing 
in other communities and other churches, things getting raised up that I just saw missing in Little Rock. And I said, what do you guys think? And people said, yeah, we think that's good. So the next Saturday night, we had our first church service uh, in a local Lutheran school gymnasium. And again, had about 60 people show up. That was our our initial service. And the, the church has been around for the last 10 years. We have uh, seven of us who serve as elders in the church. I do the primary preaching and teaching. And up until a year ago, it was a lay-led situation. We hired our first full-time staff person a year ago. So it was unusual in that it was, it was elder-led and all lay-led in the first nine years of the church. When you've told me this story in the past, one of the things that, uh, that I, I recall and one of the things that seemed to be impressive about the way you were thinking about it is is how quickly you were endeavoring to identify elders, raise them up, to take the, you know, the, the, the functional authority that had been vested in you by virtue of being the guy in the living room who said, <laughs> hey, we can do this, and try to get it in the hands of the other people. Um, where did that come from? Where did that conviction develop? Well, our background is that I had always been a part of elder-led churches from, from the very beginning, back in the the late 70s when Mary and I and I joined that church in the living room. It was it, it really came out of work that Dr. Gene Getz had been doing at Dallas Seminary, a book he wrote years ago called Sharpening the Focus of the Church. And the elder model was something that he was an advocate for, and it just made clear biblical sense to me. And so we had always looked for elder-led churches as as kind of the way a church ought to be structured and organized. Uh, so when we were planting, first of all, I had a full-time job, so I knew that I only had so much margin to be able to to offer in terms of ministry. I knew that ministry was not just the functional side of starting a church, but it was also the, the shepherding side of starting a church. And to, to do those things with a full-time job, I, I recognized that that was going to be deficient. So early on, I said, we've got to get some other guys who can help shoulder this load. And the first thing I did was I invited the men who were coming to the church to come on a Monday night for a study through Alexander Strzok's book on biblical eldership. We took about uh, six months to go through that book together, a chapter at a time. And at the end of that process, I asked the guys, I said, after reading this book, uh, I have three questions for you, first of all. Do you feel qualified yourself as an elder? Secondly, do you think you have the gifting to be an elder, the shepherding gifting? And then third, uh, do you have a desire to be an elder? First Peter says, you know, you've got to do this not under compulsion, but freely. And out of that, there were there were six guys who raised their hand and said, I think I've, I'm qualified and I have the desire and I think I have the gifting. And so we got together and vetted one another in that process. I, I had, I'd looked around at what a lot of churches were doing where the church planter kind of assumes the role of, uh, I will appoint elders, the first elder board. And I wasn't entirely comfortable with that in our situation. So I, I wanted it to kind of be a, a mutual uh, uh, validating, a mutual vetting of one another. I remember sitting down with one of the guys who had raised his hand and he said, do you think I meet the qualifications? And I said, well, the, the question I have for you relates to 
your your biblical knowledge and your your theological knowledge, which which seems thin to me. I mean, we were able to have that kind of a an honest, transparent dialogue with one another, and and he received that and talked about what he wanted to do as a as a developmental plan and and pro, uh, process. And we said, well, let's let's have you join the team, and we'll reevaluate in a year and just see how you think you're doing and, and where everybody thinks you are. So, and, and he remains a, a faithful elder. And in fact, I was telling him the other day, it, it just amazes me the level of spiritual depth that I've seen God work in him over the last uh, eight years that he's been a part of our elder team. Uh, it, he is, his, his knowledge of scripture, the way he quotes it, the way he is apt to teach today is light years ahead of where he was back in the, in the beginning stages of wow. our elder wow. formation. That's great. Bob, you uh, you spend a lot of time interviewing people, um, and if, if I'm thinking about pastors right now and realizing that eventually almost every pastor finds himself in a place where he has to publicly interview someone. You know, maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's uh, a speaker at a retreat that delivered a message and he's going to interview him afterward, but my, my question to you is what what makes the difference between a decent run-of-the-mill interviewer and and somebody who does a really good job and at, at an interview um you know i think there has to be a natural curiosity on the part of an interviewer oftentimes when when we're looking at people to interview here at, at family life i will look at the subject that somebody has some expertise in or look at their story and just by looking at the topic and looking at, at their substance, I can say, you know, I'd have a lot of questions about that. I, there are a lot of things I'd want to know just personally and a lot of things that I'd, I'd like to interact over. So there has to be kind of this natural curiosity. But then I think one of the keys to being an effective interviewer is to, to put yourself in the audience's place and ask yourself, what are the questions that the people listening to this would be most interested in in hearing the answers to. It's not what do I want to know, but it's what does my audience want to know and how can I be the conduit? When when we've done interviews on Family Life Today, we've interviewed you. You've been a guest talking about uh, about your book when sinners say I do, and I, I I typically you'll ask somebody a question, an early question about the premise for the book or where it came from, what the desire was, and early on people who have who have regularly been interviewed start giving their, not their rehearsed answer, but their preformed answer. It's, it's the stump speech that they've given uh, dozens of times. And I'm always interested in trying to get somebody past the stump speech and get to uh, a little deeper level of thought on the subject so that they're engaged uh, not just on a surface level, but on a deeper level with the material that they've written about or that they, they know about. Is there so, a path that you follow to do that typically? Um, I, I think the one thing that I've, I've done uh, that, that has, and I've done this kind of subconsciously, but somebody will state a premise, like if I was talking to you, what's the premise of your book When Sinners Say I Do? And you talk about the fact that we're all sinners and we have to recognize two sinful people coming into a marriage relationship. We have to look at our, the logs in our own eyes and not just the specks in each other's eyes. We'd have that conversation. One of the things I'm thinking while you're answering is 
what would the skeptical person listening to this be thinking? What would the cynic be saying when he hears your answer? And then I will sometimes follow up with a question by saying, you know, somebody might hear you say this and think to themselves, and then I'll, I'll state the premise of the skeptic. And at that point, we're moving into more of a defense of your premise rather than just a statement of your premise. Mm -hmm. And I think that engages at a little deeper level. So uh, that's one of the things that that I'm just always thinking the guy driving in his car who's listening to this and going, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What does he want me to ask that would cause him to go, okay, now I'd be curious about that. I want to hear how this guy answers that. Yeah, that's a great little tool right there. So so in preparation, Bob, you're you're probably reviewing their material, whatever it is you've invited them in to, to be interviewed on. Um, you're looking over their bio. Is there anything else that you're doing in preparation for the interview? Well, I heard Larry King, you know, Larry King, the, the classic, he, he did TV and radio for years uh, and was, was always thought of as a great interviewer. One of the things he said uh, about interviewing is he said, I don't want to know too much about the subject because I don't want to be in a place where my audience is not. So if I'm interviewing the author of a book and I've read the book and I'm into chapter four and I've got a specific question about something there, the audience isn't as far along in their thinking about the book as I am. So Larry said, I, I will often skim a book to get the, the overall feel, but I want to be asking questions uh, without too much knowledge because I don't want to be too far ahead of, of my audience. And I think I've, I've used that same approach. I, I want to know the subject in general, and I want to know if there are any specific points that I ought to emphasize or any specific stories or illustrations that would be compelling. But I want to be in the same place as the listener who just turned in and never heard of you or heard of your book. Uh, and, and they're going, okay, tell me about this subject and let's, let's talk about it. That's really interesting. So, so it's the interviewer as representative of the audience rather than as a peer review or peer discussion of the material. Yeah. I've, I've sat in the audience listening to some interviews and I feel like these guys are having a conversation that's a more private and a more knowledgeable conversation than I have. And I start to drift in those moments because I feel excluded from, from the process. So when I'm interviewing, I want the audience to feel like they're at the table with us. I'm getting asked the questions, but hopefully I'm asking the questions that they would be asking if they had the microphone. Bob, you and I were at a church service recently. And uh, afterward, as we were having lunch together, we were just talking about church services in general and uh, and this one a little bit in particular. And I, I thought your your uh, discussion and analysis was, was very gracious and very insightful. So I thought maybe we could try to reproduce a little bit of that, not necessarily about the church service we were in, but just in general, um, maybe by having you walk through um, different components of a church service and what you think makes them effective. So um, mm. let's talk about a solid worship experience. What, you know, what to you, either in your church or when you're visiting churches, what makes a solid worship experience in your mind? Well, I've, I've been in churches where 
the liturgy and everybody has a liturgy. A liturgy is just your order. It's what you do. I've been in churches where it's as simple as we sing three or four songs. We have some announcements. There's a sermon and you pray a prayer at the end. And that's, that's all there is to it. And, and I, I think folks can benefit from that, but in our church, we want to have a, um, more of a, uh, and a dialogue. We want the we want the congregation not to be spectators, but participants in what's going on in the worship experience. And so we have included in our in our liturgy we have uh, a call to worship. We have corporate singing, and I want to say a little more about corporate singing here in just a minute. But we we have a uh, a time of confession, a prayer of confession that is led, and a time for uh, private reflection and response to that. Uh, when we have that time of confession, we end it with some kind of a, a declaration of the gospel, the assurance that pardon is granted to those who believe the gospel. Uh, we also include uh, a confession of faith. We we have worked through, over the last three or four years, a number of uh, catechisms on a Sunday morning, just the question and answer response with somebody reading the questions and then the congregation reading the responses aloud. We went through the New City Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, this year, there's a there's a Baptist Catechism that uh, John Piper has used in his church. So we've gone through different catechisms just to again have a uh, a public confession. These are the things we believe, and to be saying that corporately as as a church. And then we have the sermon, and we are a church that does communion weekly. Uh, I love doing communion weekly. When we started the church, we had a lot of people who were skeptical, thinking this is going to become old or routine. And people who have been a part of the church for 10 years would say this is one of their favorite things about worshiping at Redeemer is having the opportunity to uh, to publicly reaffirm the gospel every week. And that's that's what I love about communion. No matter what you're preaching on, you have to come back to setting the table and setting the table brings you back to the the cross and the resurrection. So you can't have a church service without the gospel being present as a part of your your service if communion is a, a part of the way you do that. And then we'll have a closing hymn and benediction. That's that's kind of the way that we structure it. And again, all of it is designed so that people are not just spectators, but they're participants in what's going on during the service. And what was the point you wanted to make about singing? Well, I've got some pet peeves here, and so as as I've met with our worship leaders, I've been in enough churches where uh, the music is done with real excellence, but it's done uh, at such a level of excellence that I can't join in. It's so loud that I can't hear the people next to me singing. Sometimes I can't hear myself singing. Uh, it's It's pitched so high that I can't sing. Or they'll do a song that starts low, but then it jumps an octave, and once it jumps an octave, I'm out because I'm I'm not that skillful a vocalist. Uh, and and sometimes the songs are so melodically complex that if I don't know the song, I can't join in. So I've been at some worship services where if they do four songs, I didn't know three of them, and even if I had known them, they would have been hard for me to sing along. I think we have to recognize that the purpose of our corporate worship is corporate worship. We want people raising their voices and singing loudly and and with passion uh, the songs of the people. And so we tell our, our worship pastor, you have to have uh, 
you have to have a, at least uh, two songs that were written before 1900 as a part of the service every week. So that way we've got we've got a mix of old and new. We've got folks who come from different traditions who can likely know some of the songs we're singing. I said I'd like to make sure that three out of the four songs are songs that that uh, pretty much everybody can understand and relate to easily. They've, they've probably heard these songs. Even a visitor might know some of these songs unless they're just completely unchurched. And then uh, no song should go to, the, the highest note should be a D above middle C for those of us who are male vocalists, because that's about as high as the average person can get. And it, little things like this that just help promote corporate singing rather than worship being a performance. I remember you saying you, you also reach for a song that's common or relatively well-known as a first song in order to draw people in and guests in. Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah, that that's right. You, I think you want the first song to be something that everybody goes, oh, I know this. So whether it's uh, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, and you might say, well, nobody knows that song anymore. Well, that's that's tragic, so we'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to that another time. But uh, it might be a popular Chris Tomlin song, something that's in the top 25 on CCLI's charts of, of the most sung songs in America. You want it to be something where people go, I know this song, I like this song, I'm happy to sing this song, and I can jump right in. Do you think... Uh strategically and theologically about how announcements are done and the offering is done? Is that a part of your pre-meeting discussion and planning? We've just been having conversations about the announcements. In fact, I think, I think we're at a point where announcements may go away. We have a weekly newsletter. We've got slides that are showing before the service, but I, I think the announcements uh, we're having a conversation here about just how critical are these and do these need to be a part of, of what you're doing? What really does need to be emphasized during an announcement segment? And if so, where does that go? Is that at the very beginning or is that at the very end of the worship service? Uh, sometimes if you do it at the beginning, only a third of the people hear it because people show up late for church these days. If you do it at the end, it feels like you have just taken uh, you, you've just spiked the ball, and now you come along and, and do announcements. It kind of takes the, the edge off what you've just done in terms of uh, preaching and in terms of uh, the gospel. So we're, we're starting to think, should those be in print that we hand out to everybody and we skip doing any kind of uh, announcements? We're in flux on that. Uh, and then in terms of the offering, uh, th this is another area where I've, I've kind of been torn. We have for 10 years had an offering box in the back of the church. We haven't passed a plate during the service. Uh, part of me wants to pass a plate because I want the giving of money to be an act of worship, not just an incidental. Uh, but I also am aware of the cultural sensitivity in, in our day of people uh, feeling like like the church has too much of a, a money focus. And so we have we have de-emphasized that by just pointing people to there's a box in the back if you want to uh, make an offering to the church this morning, and of course a lot of our giving's online these days. So again, the ground has kind of shifted in that area, and we keep evaluating what's the best way to communicate here that that giving should be an act of worship and should be a part of what we're doing as believers. 
Bob, I'm going to make this my uh, my last question, uh, but I, it's one that I am interested in. I think our listeners would be interested in because you and I got to know each other when you came to Philadelphia to interview me for the Art of Marriage video. And somewhere along the way over the last year, I became aware that family life, and I think you even mentioned this to me, is now doing an Art of Parenting video. So tell us about that and when that's going to be released. Yeah, this has been an exciting project for us. It's been two years in the making, but we have created an eight-session video series, about 30 minutes for each video. I think they're between 25, and I think the longest one is 40 minutes long. There's a companion workbook that's designed for small group interaction or discussion, and all of this is uh, is designed to help moms and dads be thinking more purposefully, more intentionally and strategically, and more biblically about the assignment of parenting. We looked around and, and saw lots of moms and dads are getting their parenting advice from mommy blogs or from what their friends are saying on Facebook. And we can benefit from shared community in those areas, but there didn't seem to be a lot of biblical instruction here. And so uh, I went around and interviewed dozens of people and compiled a, uh, a video series that has contributions from uh, everybody from Alistair Begg and Kevin DeYoung to Brian and Corey Loritz, Dr. Meg Meeker, Tim and Darcy Kimmel, Elise Fitzpatrick. We just got a lot of people to uh, speak into these biblical priorities and created these eight sessions. One of the things I wanted to do with this series was include a story thread through the teaching to both capture people's hearts and to keep them engaged in the content. And so we set out to tell a continuing story about a couple on their parenting journey. And when we got all done, we realized that this story we had created actually works better if you watch it before you sit down to go through the parent, parenting material, watch it all in one setting. So now we have a movie that that is called Like Arrows that's actually going to be in theaters May 1st and May 3rd as a two-night only event. And we're hoping that that will be the kickoff for uh, millions of people. And I say that uh, we really have in our sites, millions of people worldwide, uh, engaging with biblical content on parenting. We think there needs to be a movement of intentional parenting today. And so all of this releases the first of May, and, uh, we're going to have an online course on parenting. That's going to be free for people to go through. We've got the small group kit that churches can use. And we're looking at ways that we can get this parenting content in the hands of people who are far from God and far from the church right now. So we're excited about this uh, this effort and hope that God will will use it and bless it for his uh, glory. So Like Arrows will release May 1st and 2nd in theaters, and then The Art of Parenting will release around the same time? Same time. So it's May 1st and 3rd. That's a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. And then uh, May 1st, everything goes live. The online course will be live. The video kit will be available for, for, for churches to get. All of that starts up May 1st. Excellent. And they'll find that at Family Life? If you go to familylife.com slash parenting, that's where all the info is. Excellent, Bob. Well, thank you, Bob, for, uh, well, first, thank you for serving the body of Christ faithfully through Family Life. Uh, deeply grateful for that. Um, but I love the fact that God has put in your heart a, a corresponding commitment to the local church. 
And, uh, and so I thank God for that, and I thank you for that, and thanks for joining us on today's podcast at Am I Called? This has been a delight. I, uh, I love connecting with you, Dave, and, and uh, pray God's blessing on your ministry and your work. Thank you. And thanks for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast. Oh.